This is Fundraising Review, and today's guest speaker we have Anton Fedorov, Investment Director at Flashpoint Venture Capital. In this episode, we'll talk about cross-border investing investments in the U United, not the United States, European Union, that's what I meant by EU. <laughs> and we'll also talk a little about the structure, investing in US-based immigrants, and so forth. So, Anton, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Flashpoint Venture Capital. Sure. Hi, Konstantin. Pleasure to be here. Um, so, so Flashpoint uh, is an alternative asset manager. Uh, we are investing in uh, early stage uh, from our equity fund, uh, and that is usually defined by post-seed to early A. And then we also, as, um, as a Flashpoint asset manager, we also have a venture debt product, which invests into more later stage companies, I would say late B, uh, with a venture debt product. Um, so I'm based in Israel, but the fund has uh, six offices headquartered in London and then regionally where the tech ecosystems are vibrant. So we are present in Israel, we're present in Warsaw, Poland, in uh, Budapest, Hungary, and then Moscow. Got it, got it. And first thing first, I wanted to discuss what's your role at Flashpoint Venture Capital. So what does an investment director do? So yeah, so so the way we are structured, pretty much investment director does everything from uh, managing sourcing. Uh, and so we have two people uh, in Israel, myself and, and, and a colleague, um, Oz. Um, so Together, we source the companies, we analyze the companies, we uh, do the commercial business diligence, and then we present an investment case to the investment committee. Um, and, and once we approve the deal with an investment committee, we also sit on the board. So I personally sit on a few boards um, and then manage the investment. And, and then my role is to make sure that the company grows, the next round builds the shareholder value, and then we help facilitate an exit uh, when either for all the shareholders or just for so yeah so the investment director pretty much does everything uh, uh and uh and so it's it's a quite a versatile environment uh you you get to operate in mm -hmm. got it so you said that when you basically like some project you present to the investment committee, how big is that committee and how many votes do you need to have to, to, to get this project approved and actually to, to receive financing? Sure. So, so we are structured with, so we have three investment committee members. So two of them are general partners and then we have an independent, um, investment committee member. So, so usually as in, as in with any majority of the funds, you need to have a majority uh, of of, mm -hmm. of um, and but really speaking and speaking from the experience of other funds, most likely the decision is unilateral. Um, and if somebody has a very opposite direction about not to do a deal, you most likely will not do it. Um, Got it. So, uh, next question was about the geography of your investments. So you were based in, um, Israel, 
we'll get back to that part later, by the way. Uh, but do you invest in the U.S. companies at all, or is it <clears throat> something you don't do? Yeah, so so we uh, the investment strategy of the fund is is mostly to seek out domestic uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and uh, and they are sometimes uh, are based in the local geographies where we're present. Sometimes they're already uh, immigrated to the U.S. Um, and to the Western Europe, and have R and D talent still residing in the local geographies. Uh, just because from the from the so having actually a development team located in Israel or Warsaw Poland or in Budapest or in Bulgaria uh, or Russia um, is, is a quite competitive advantage versus when you're competing on the global markets with with US um, you know, all teams domestic so right. the cost per per developer is usually two three times lower and as with any technology investment you are investing anywhere between, I would say, two, three, five million dollars in terms of R and D uh, before your product is kind of gets this product market fit um, readiness. Uh, so, so you are actually much more efficient in terms of um, in terms of outsourcing talent uh, towards your home geography uh, versus building that everything in the U.S. But like half and half, I think half of our founders are domestic and half of our founders actually relocate to the U.S. or Western geographies, mostly U.S., to, to be closer to the clients. So, so immigrants are definitely a pool of our uh, um, pipeline funnel. And by the way, just clarification for those who might forget what R&D is, it's research and development. Uh, so that's a good point. And... Uh, any country besides U.S., I think, has that advantage of having a lower cost in terms of uh, development. So let's talk about uh, selling to the U.S. while being non-U.S.-based companies. So U.S. is probably one of the largest markets, and we well know that. And you mentioned in our pre-interview call, you mentioned that a lot of your portfolio companies actually sell to the U.S. customers while being non-US based, can we go in depth into this project? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, obviously there, 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 there are a lot of talent in the local geographies who are English speaking. So, and we as a company mostly focus on B2B software. So we do also consume the internet and we have a few, um, a few companies that are quite large. We have uh, a Russian type Netflix business uh, that is uh, over $100 million in revenue. But most of our most of our deals in the last few years have been B2B SaaS. So, so the process with B2B SaaS is most likely if you're selling to SMB uh, and mid-markets um, is, is about making sure that you have the demos and then uh, with SDRs, uh, build those demos, and then you have a conversion funnel from SDR with account executives down to uh, to new customers. So a lot of that process is is can be really automated, and uh, and it's just like if you invest into content marketing, you you obviously have a lot of inbound requests. Um, so so every company has a little bit different strategy. Um, but the ones that are doing outbound and, and content marketing, they actually have uh, almost zero 
present in the US um, at the time that we invest. And if there is if there is a need for for like partnership channels, usually it requires a little bit more on the ground presence, being just closer to the to the partners themselves because they often want to meet with you in person uh, before kind of partnering and making sure that you are within the same time zone as they are. So right. for, we have a company called Marketman who relocated to the U.S. after Israel uh, four years ago, and they've built this partnership channel with a lot of point-of-sale companies. So they are actually have most of the sales team in the U.S., uh, in other Israel companies, Guesty, they have completely out of, they have an office in the U.S., but uh, all of the in early success before they raised uh, the last uh, $35 million round C was pretty much outbound uh, sales strategy and, and inbound uh, from the website. So they didn't really need a presence in the U.S. to sell to the U.S. customers. Nice, nice, nice. That's impressive. So... For those of your portfolio companies that decide that you know it's us, it's time for us to move to the US. And for those who are not in your portfolio, what's your recommendation? Where should they start? Should they try to apply to some uh, you know accelerator? Are there any US accelerators that actually cover uh, first, let's say, three months of living in the US and maybe travel as well? What's your advice on that? So, <clears throat> I think the biggest advice that uh, before kind of like fully and at the stage that we're just to make sure that uh, you know, that everybody understands. So we invest usually not at the seed stage. We invest at a, at a kind of late seed, early A stage. Usually by that time, the company is already somewhere in between 15 and 30 employees. Um, so so we're not, uh, I mean, we, we've had successes when, when their companies was four founders and one of, one of them basically relocated to the U.S. and built the business uh, in the U.S., uh, but even that company, uh, before committing, uh, going abroad, found the channel how to generate uh, some inbound leads from, from the local market. So just bluntly relocating to, to the U.S. and thinking that just being there, you'll, you'll do success, uh, definitely there is no guarantee in that. So, and most of our people, when they really think about opening an office, first is they actually get a handful of customers uh, on the ground before uh, before relocating themselves. Um, and with respect to accelerators, obviously going through like 500 startups or YC helps you immensely. And what we've seen is that if you if you want to sell in the US, like a YC, being a graduate of YC or even 500 startups allows you to to kind of position if you're selling to the tech tech world um, and tech companies themselves, kind of being a graduate of those two helps tremendously in terms of conversion ratios. Um, we had a company that like um, that we didn't invest, but we were in heavy due diligence before they were YC graduate. They basically had a conversion of like under ten percent, and then once they graduated, the conversion uh, moved to like twenty five percent range. So just, yes, just being kind of vetted by the local ecosystem can help uh, in, in the conversions. Uh, and that's something that uh, if you haven't really considered one of the top accelerators, it does definitely have this um, uh, juice attached to it. Huh. Got it, got it. So 
a lot of uh, special European-based uh, startups. At one point, they decide that it's time to raise money from the U.S. because in the Europe, there's just you know, way less investors. And when's that point when you think it does make sense for them to move to the U.S.? Because I've personally seen multiple attempts to raise money from the U.S. investors, but then they say like, hey, you don't have enough traction here on our local turf or they're just not good enough. When's that point when you think that, you know, those expenses of flying to the U.S. of leaving here, probably Silicon Valley, when's it a good investment? Well, I think... I think you, you need to understand that any fundraising process uh, usually is can can take as long as like six months, and uh, and all the VCs they they operate with an asymmetry of information, so so they all want to make sure that they have like some base established with you, and they want to see like how you progress uh, as as they get to know you, so. Uh, so if you just met, met a VC that uh, for the first time, um, the likelihood, unless your growth is like, I don't know, 5, 10x year over year, um, the likelihood that the conversation will quickly progress to a term sheet is is relatively low. Um, so, so my recommendation, if you do want to raise money from uh, US investor base, you should probably think about a year in advance. So, because, well, first of all, it'll take you probably at least six to 12 months to, to actually establish, if you don't have already traction in the U.S., establish traction in the U.S., and, and then you should probably have at least six months uh, of, of when you kind of introduce yourself to the local ecosystem and they get to know you through, through a, a prolonged period of time of not just like six to 12 weeks. So, um, so if, if you think that you can by storm kind of just quickly get to the Valley or to the New York and go through the VC ecosystem and they just, people will start underwriting like capital, even if you have like two year, like two, two, two times growth year over year. I mean, it's, it's not really, I mean, we've seen like companies that were successful in that, but I would say that the majority were in. The all like the super majority was 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 not so right. really that's and and that's why that's what what we're doing is is actually aligning that way is is we kind of help help bridge that gap of uh, of entrepreneur that is maybe already relocated to the U.S. but hasn't been there for like a year uh, year and a half being deeply plugged in and that's where we kind of come in and um, we feel comfortable. Uh, with uh, with non-U.S. traction uh, and making sure that we help basically facilitate that U.S. traction to make sure that uh, they're ready to raise the next mm -hmm. uh, round, but locally. Right, right. And you said that you should probably start your fundraising like 12 months before you actually want to raise money, and I totally agree with you on that, but I would love to hear your recommendation on, you know, establishing that first point of connection. So let's say I am a German-based company and I want to start raising in the U.S. in a year or two. But right now I don't have any traction in the U.S. What should I text a U.S.-based investor? Should it be like, hey, I don't have traction yet, but I will have it in the in the future? Should we talk? Or how should that you know, first email or LinkedIn outreach work? Well, um, it's 
the way the way we've seen it is uh, there is there is some I mean all of the even U.S. based investors they are they're comprised of a variety of immigrants. U.S. is kind of is an immigrant market by themselves. So I think with having zero traction in the U.S., if you are a European company, uh, what you really need to do is make sure that most likely you'll probably need to, if you want to raise from the local guys, you will probably need to relocate yourself. But if you just want to like, like build some connections, the most uh, successful way is to just target uh, German people in, in, in the U.S. So we've seen where kind of being, uh, having a heritage uh, with, with um, same citizenship as, as kind of like that really allows you to breach some level and the, the response rate is actually much higher versus just spamming everybody um, uh, because there is usually some level of uh, nationality uh, conversion attached to, 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 to such aspects. So, um, so people who immigrated from Germany or German speaking uh, and it's relatively easy like today to identify who are and who are not just based on the uh, profiling people, uh, but that it, uh, we've seen that success uh, before. You said it's easy. Let's talk about that. I think I personally probably I'm just not good to good in uh, you know profiling people. But for how, how do you how do you do this? Should you like search people based on the universities they've been to, or so for example we use LinkedIn. How should I find all people from? Uh, Germany who currently live in the US and who also are doing angel investing or VC investing. How do you do this? Well, I mean, well, first of all, like today, I mean, if you are a developer and then hopefully you are, you have the tech team, uh, there's definitely, for example, we, how, how we source uh, the, the entrepreneurs that are abroad. So, so there are a few open source libraries that actually based on your personal name, can mm -hmm. easily tell you what's your like what's your um what's your background uh and uh and you can actually do that at scale because to some extent uh as fundraising is if you want to raise a fund you got to talk to 100 funds in the, right. if you want to raise around you got to talk to 100 somewhere around 50 to 100 funds um and then i mean the conversion from like uh, angel investors is definitely higher most often, uh, but still, like if you want to raise I don't know, money from like four, five, six angels, you still got to talk to like 50, 60 people. So if you want to talk to 50, 60 people, you need to pretty much screen 500 to 600 people within the same geography and do that one by one. It's relatively tough. Uh, so you got to like some way to automate that. Um, and the way to automate that is just take a crunch base and run through the queries of um, who, who've done deals and uh, who invested into some companies and, and then see who are kind of uh, within, the, within the same citizen, for example, and, and then just approach already those like three, 400 uh, that are most aligned. So you have some emotional incentive for a person to talk to you uh, because when you're just doing outbound, there is always, there needs to be some hook of why why a person wants to Otherwise, uh, otherwise, it's just uh, the conversion is going to be lower. But right. we also do like a lot of LinkedIn, like just outbound, like messaging uh, to to the people who wanna uh, who wanna put our money in. So we're 
ourselves as a sales-driven organization, not as a, as a marketing-driven organization. Got it. And just a small life hack from a person who does not know anything about coding, which is me. <laughs> uh, how you can profile those people is you can just search their uh, educational background. So, for example, you choose like top 10 uh, German-based universities, and then you put location, current location USA, and then you put you search VC or something like that, and that's it, basically. Uh, so that's yeah, we, we, we've done that in the early days. Um, and then, and then like you, you, there's not a lot of, there are not too many people usually that actually like sure. integrated, but like, uh, but the people who are actually German by nature, but they're first or second level immigrants. Oh, I see, uh, I see. There, there's, uh, there's definitely much more people like that. And so the way to yeah. analyze those is usually by first and last name. Good point. Yours is harder, but it definitely works better. So let's talk about your person, not your personal, but Flashpoint's uh, investment strategies. So first thing, do you invest right now during this pandemic or are you waiting for the dust to sell? No, we are. We just actually, uh, we're, as we're investing our, starting to invest our third fund, um, equity fund, we're, we just issued our first term sheet. Um, and uh, so, yes, we are continuing to do investments. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a lot of been volatility in, in terms of market, like in April and, and um, March. Uh, but I think as, uh, as, as the markets kind of stabilized with the help of central banks uh, over the last couple of months, it gives a little bit more comfort uh, in terms of our LPs and our peace of mind and, and the economy. Although I do must say that the... The real economy is not really in that much sync uh, with uh, with the stock market um, because we've seen a number of sectors definitely where activity has has um, vaporized. Like travel, obviously, is one. HR has been definitely hit, uh, and, uh, and so things are not returning as quickly as you would hope them to return, and definitely not as quickly as the stock market has returned. And almost at its uh, all-time highs, uh, so uh, so yeah. But we are investing, and uh, and we think right now is actually time to invest um, because some of the there's a lot more angel activity happening these days, and uh, and uh, there there's definitely going to be more like seed companies emerging over the next I would say two three years. Yeah, uh, because in 2019 there was like some diminishing activity in terms of seed, uh, and mostly most of the money actually went into, I would say, like post B, C, D growth stage companies. Right, right. So I actually you mentioned seed, and I realized that I forgot to ask you follow up question on what you said. So you said that Flashpoint invests basically regular equity as well as venture debt, which is really interesting strategy. And I had a question about venture debt. So at which level can a company even attempt to raise through venture debt? So mainly I know it's like starting from series A when you have some track record in terms of uh, cash generating business, etc. But when's that early stage when you can even consider raising uh, through venture debt or any sort of debt? So, so just to give a comment, so, so venture debt and venture equity, so we don't, uh, we don't mix and match those. So, so it's either like it's a separate fund, um, it's under the umbrella of Flashpoint funds, 
Uh, and there's a separate team that resides ma mainly in London and in Warsaw and Riga. Um, and, and the way when they feel comfortable is usually post B stage. So by the time that the company is at a B stage, usually it makes some like four or $5 million in ARR. So, um, and it, when it raises its 15 million, $20 million round, the venture comes either as part or on top and offers another, I would say three to $5 million of debt on top of this uh, equity raise and just expands the overall uh, burn rate by, I would say six to nine months um, because venture debt is convertible. So you have to actually pay back the, uh, the loan and, and the interest. Um, but, uh, if you are growing fast, especially if you are a capital intensive industry, um, having going through, gone through this venture debt, uh, exercise at a B stage, C stage and D stage, you really mitigating about a, one round of dilution. So if you actually mm -hmm. think that for a company to go from like zero to 50 million in revenue usually takes about five, six rounds. Like if you can conserve this one round of dilution, you as a founder are being left with like tens of millions of dollars worth of your stake. So, mm -hmm. and not just the founders, but the investors themselves, they, they have this basically potential to leverage their, uh, their, their, existing, uh, their existing investments. It's very hard to leverage a fund. Um, by, 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 by nature. Uh, so, so this is a way to kind of leverage your, especially in a high growth environment, raising venture debt is, is much more compelling, uh, versus raising equity and diluting everything. Exactly. And that's, that's a good response. So we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So what's one thing that you would recommend a listener to do as soon as this episode is over? So one specific thing. A lot of the B2B startups, um, they, and it's definitely an emerging trend uh, in the last, I would say, year or two, but there are still a lot of companies, especially B2B companies, that under-invest in content marketing from the earlier days. So they get to this channel by the time they actually raise their Series A or Series B, uh, but they don't actually realize that if you do it at a seed stage and don't invest a lot of money, but you invest like, I don't know, 20, like 15, $20,000 into content generation, uh, that if you do it smart enough, you can actually build your whole lead gen funnel all through the series B stage. And we had a few companies that were successful in that and they built their whole like growth engine out of that alone. So we had a company Guesty, which basically did a whole like investment into blog uh, about Airbnb and how to manage their rental properties on Airbnb, and mm -hmm. up until like our investment uh, in 2016. So from 2014 to 2016, all their sales were like really related towards inbound like leads and and nice. um, uh, and that is usually the most efficient actually way. To, to do that. So it does take a little of time to, to, to get indexed by Google, but I think that's probably the biggest value 
that you can actually make for the, for the earlier stage money uh, in the earlier days. Because like hiring sales and and by, you don't really have a full blown product. It's uh, you got to train the salespeople. So uh, investing in sales very early days is, is has a lot of risk attached to it. And uh, and content on the otherwise, uh, it, it's it's not a one time thing. So you invest in content, and by the time you actually index, you'll start to see repeatable uh, lead gens, uh, leads from from the channel. So. Um, so that's probably like my number one recommendation is to just think about content marketing from the very early beginning. Perfect. That's a wonderful recommendation. I'm personally a big fan of, you know, content generation. I think that not enough founders pay attention to this, but it's just so time consuming that it's truly hard to, to do that. But I still think that that's a really good idea. And on this note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Anton, for coming up and for sharing your experience and you know, insights into the field. Uh, really interesting episode. Thanks for that. Sure. It was my pleasure, Clancy.